0: Listeners, welcome back to the Thrive Theology podcast. Um, We are coming at you today with episode two in our Sacraments in Christendom series. Today, we are going to talk to you about communion slash the Eucharist, as well as confession slash penance. These are some really interesting, very complicated topics in the sacrament umbrella, and we are going to hopefully break it down in a way that you can understand and explain to somebody else later. As always, you can check out our website, ThriveTheology.com. You can check us out on Instagram as well. Um, You can find all of our contact information there. We would love to chat with you if you have any questions or just want to have a conversation. And now let's get on with today's episode.
1: All right. So we're going to get started with talking about communion or the Eucharist. Protestants refer to this as communion or the Lord's Supper and Roman Catholics refer to it as the Eucharist. Communion or the Eucharist is simply the act of eating the bread and wine together with other believers and it being consumed. The bread is called the host in Roman Catholic tradition, and the word Eucharist that they use means thanksgiving.
0: We're going to start with the biblical basis for this. There's a foreshadowing of communion in John chapter 6, verses 30 through 59, and we're going to show And I'm just going to read verse um, 48 through 51 for you here. He says, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world." Now here, Jesus is teaching to the large crowds that are following him, um, and they're following him mostly because he does a lot of big signs and exciting things, and when he preaches, it's really interesting. Um, but they challenge Jesus to show them a sign, like all of the other prophets did, um, especially a sign like the man in the desert. And Jesus says, actually, the manna points to me and to my work. Um, and he says that, you your answer is, ate bread that manna that came down from heaven in the wilderness, but the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone might eat and not die, that's me. Now, here's here's an interesting thing. Later in this passage, the a lot of the crowd is going to leave. Um, and the reason they do this is because they think that Jesus is talking about cannibalism. And you're like, wait, cannibalism in the Bible. Well, here it is. In verses 53 through 58, Jesus says, Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Yeah, sounds a little bit like cannibalism. So the crowd actually took it to mean cannibalism and they were disgusted because obviously this is not only incredibly against Jewish law, but super offensive just for normal humans. Um, And this is when Jesus lost a lot of his followers. Now, When Jesus mentions this to the twelve, he says, "'You do not want to leave me too, do you?' Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, "'Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God.'" And so it's worth it to point out here that the disciples decided to give Jesus the benefit of the doubt. They had seen enough and heard enough and been with him long enough that they knew that he wasn't just trying to shock the people, that he actually meant something behind these words, and they were willing to stick around and trust him that he would make it plain um, and that he wasn't actually going against um, the Jewish law, which is
1: fascinating, Of course, we also have the institution of the Last Supper found in Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 through 30. And I'm just going to read a few of those verses um, for you. I'm going to read verses 26 to 29. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So... As was common for the Passover meal, um, you had the highest ranking person leading the meal. And in this situation, it was Jesus because he was the rabbi and the rest of the 12 were his followers. And instead of simply handing out the food, like the host of the Passover would normally have done, Jesus, he takes his time and he actually introduces a new covenant and speaks to them as he is passing the food. And of course, he highlights the the bread and the wine. There was many other other elements to the Passover meal as well. But these are the ones that Jesus highlights. Jesus here claims that the bread and the wine are his body and blood. And as we're going to be discussing in a minute here, the Roman Catholic church interprets this passage a little bit differently than other Christian traditions do as to whether the bread and wine are merely representative of Christ's body and blood, or if they are, or if they have more meaning than that.
0: We're going to start here with the Roman Catholic perspective, and we're going to introduce a new word, maybe a new word to you, transubstantiation. This is a word that means when the elements are blessed, the elements being the bread and the wine, um, they retain the appearance, nutritional value, and physical form of regular bread and wine, but they are
1: now the essence of Christ's literal body and blood. So they become Christ's body and blood. Literally, but they still have all of the physical qualities. Forms, qualities, yes. Yeah. Of bread and wine. So the
0: Eucharist is the true bread from heaven. The verses we just read before where Jesus is saying about the bread from heaven, in the Protestant tradition, it would be Jesus claiming to be um, the true bread from heaven. But in Roman Catholicism, not only is that, but the Eucharist itself is also the true bread from heaven. Because it's Jesus. Because it's Jesus in a physical slash non-physical form. Oh, it is confusing. We understand this. Many, uh, many words have been typed. Much ink has been spilt on this topic. Catholicchurch.org says this, quote, The bread and wine are changed into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus when the priest repeats the words of consecration spoken at the Last Supper. In this way, the sacrifice on the cross that Jesus offered on Calvary is made present again so that we can join in offering it to the Father and receive its benefits. So remember we talked in the first episode in this series about a sacrament um, being a means of giving of grace to the the parishioner. They would say that you are again receiving the benefit of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross because you are literally doing the thing that he instituted in the first in the in the Last Supper or the First Communion, it's complicated, but that's that's kind of the easiest way to explain it without going
1: so f- much further that it's confusing. We're gonna slightly switch gears here and talk briefly about the Anglican perspective, um, and it's very similar in some ways to the Protestant perspective as well. So we'll touch on both of those. The Anglican perspective of the Eucharist follows the consubstantiation doctrine. Consubstantiation is when the elements spiritually become the body and blood of Christ, but not literally. Um, They do not seek to understand the mechanics or intricacies of how they become spiritually the body of Christ, but they sort of just take scripture at face value in this sense. The Anglican church does still honor the elements As Christ, And so when they approach the elements on the altar or on the communion table, they bend the knee, which is called genuflecting towards them. So they definitely still pay some honor to to the elements. In the service, they refer to the elements as bread and wine until the priest prays the consecration prayer. And then after this consecration prayer is prayed, they start to refer to the elements as the body and blood, and they treat them with this honor. This is even
0: carried over to discarding of unused portions. Very much care is taken with that.
1: And then the Protestant perspective is also consubstantiation. So the doctrine of the Protestant church would state that the bread and wine of communion are spiritually the body and blood of Christ, but not literally, just like the Anglican church. But we tend to not... Pay quite the same honor to the elements that the Anglican Church does. We don't genuflect or bend the knee. Um, and we really restrict the elements to being purely symbolic of the body and blood of Christ. Martin Luther, at the time of the Reformation, argued that the body and blood are spiritually, quote, in, with, and under the elements. That was sort of how he explained it. And that is what most protestant denominations would still follow and affirm today
0: not only that like it varies greatly on how this is interpreted so um like our church doesn't actually use literal wine we use grape juice and there's mm-hmm. a certain brand that they buy like when we're doing normal communion where they fill the cups themselves and we pass around the communion plate there's a certain kind of grape juice and like Forever for my entire life, anytime I ever taste that grape juice, it will remind me of communion just because that's what I've had for my whole life. Um, we have actually changed the different types of bread that we use throughout the years to be gluten free, dairy free, soy free, all of the free things. We so use that rice crackers. Yes.
1: And it's so noisy. It is so it's noisy. It's hilarious. Okay. Yeah. It's really noisy when we're all eating the rice crackers because yeah. they're, yeah, they're, like you said, nutritionally, like they're super. We used to use the premium plus crackers. Yeah, we did. Those I remember that. And then we used the rice crackers. And I always try to not smile because you can literally hear yes. everybody chewing in the whole sanctuary. It's funny. Yeah. And then now with COVID, we can't pass elements. So we've gotten the little individually wrapped. So now the bread is, is like cardboard.
0: It is so gross. It like melts, but not quite enough that you feel like it's melting fast enough. And it's just not nice. Um, We did this because we have quite a few members of our congregation who have different allergies who wouldn't be able to partake in that portion. Um, My mom is one of them. She's been gluten-free for over 10 years now. So when they switched over to these rice crackers, it was just such a a blessing for all of these other people to also be able to join us um, in that. Sorry to all the people who have rice
1: allergies, I guess. I do have one. Additional comment to just make. We forgot to mention when we were talking about the Roman Catholic Eucharist, one thing that you cannot do is you cannot chew the wafer when you take it. Because they believe it becomes literally the body and blood of Christ, you can't chew it. Bethany is shocked. <laughs> I did not know this. Yeah, so they have very but- thin wafers. So you place it on your tongue and you allow it to dissolve. And then you. Okay, sp- but why? Because you can't chew Jesus. Why not? He said so. We just read the verses where he said. I don't know. Oh, my goodness. I'm trying really hard to not laugh into the microphone right now. Okay. Yeah, you can't. Okay. Don't chew Jesus. Oh, my word. (laughs)
0: Our next sacrament is confession slash penance. So this is when a person confesses their sins to another person, usually someone in religious authority over them. And then depending on the tradition that, that, that this is, forgiveness is either affirmed or dispensed um, to the confessor. The biblical basis for this is James chapter five, verse 16, which says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. We're going to talk about the rest of this passage um, when we talk about anointing the sick later on. But basically, this is where it's from. The Roman Catholic perspective on confession, there's a whole process and it starts with self-examination. You have to be truly sorry for your sins and you have to be resolved to not commit them again. So not that you're promising to never do so, since of course we do still sin, but every possible effort to make amends must be made. Then you enter the confessional, which is a box with a slidey thing. That's all I know.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's like a little, it's almost like a little closet. And the priest is on one side and there's like a a wall with like a little screen between you. yeah. So it allows for some like anonymity, but not necessarily complete anonymity. And then it's just you and the priest alone. And there might be a lineup of people outside waiting to get in as well. And you sit down and the priest hears your your confession.
0: And so you have to make the sign of the cross. And then you have to say when your last good confession was, like how many days ago. It's been so many days since I confessed or something. um, The priest may read a passage of scripture for you. You have to start with saying all of the mortal sins committed since the last confession that that, that you can remember, concluding with, I am sorry for these and all the sins of my past life.
1: And if you don't know what a mortal sin versus a venial sin is, you can go check out our episode on Catholicism. We explain that in detail. Don't you have to confess venial sins? The one article I read said that they don't really bother with the venial sins because how on earth would you ever remember all the venial sins you did? You'd be in the confessional a very long time. Right. So they focus more on the mortal sins, like the more serious sins. How often are you committing those? Well, it's not just like murder. <laughs> um, actually, okay. something that's really interesting is that uh, legally priests are not, they are protected. So yes, if, if you are murder somebody and nobody knows and you go and confess that sin to a priest, That priest does not have... And then the police come and interrogate the priest. That priest does not have to say anything.
0: Do you know how many TV shows that has been the the plot line in? Yeah. Yes. So this would be um, doctor-patient confidentiality, except it's confessor-confessee
1: confidentiality. Yeah. And it's only like, I think you have to be like an ordained priest or minister in order to be protected by that. But yeah. Cool. Um, So after you confess your sins, the priest will assign some penance. So this is not just like, you know, standing on your head for 10 hours or anything like that. (laughs) Um, It's rather something, it's usually something more like, you know, praying the rosary or that kind of thing. And the goal of this is to decrease the temporal punishment of the sins that you've confessed. You may also be invited to repeat an act of contrition, which would be something like, quote, I am heartily sorry for having offended you and I detest all my sins because I dread the loss of heaven and the pains of hell. But most of all, because I have offended you, my God, who are all good and deserving of all my love. I firmly resolve with the help of your grace to confess my sins, to do penance and to amend my life. Amen. And the priest will conclude by speaking the words of absolution, which is assurance of forgiveness of the church. Through the priest. Now I have
0: a question here. Is the priest the one actually dispensing the forgiveness? Like, does the priest
1: have the power to forgive or not forgive? I believe he has the power to forgive on behalf of God. So he could say no. I mean, theoretically, but since God forgives, he would be wrong in withholding forgiveness.
0: I have words, but I shall not speak any further. Okay. It's okay, Bethany. You're not Catholic. You don't have to agree with it. Next, we have the Protestant perspective. Now, confession is not recognized as a sacrament for Protestants, but it is viewed as an important part of the Christian's life. Um, in general, they don't. The poor Protestant church does not put as nearly as much emphasis on confession. Um, believers are generally encouraged to confess to one another privately, um, like we talked about in James chapter five or sixteen. Um, many believers believe that unconfessed sin can inhibit God's work in one's life as well as, you know, not being able to hear the Holy Spirit as much because you've spoken so much and done so much against Him and not cleaned the slate per se. Um, of course, in forgiveness is God removing your sins from you as far as the East is from the West, which is to say, like, essentially forever and ever. Um, and it's a really a, a beautiful picture of basically exactly what the Christian life is in the Eastern Orthodox perspective, the person confessing is not confessing their sins to the priest, but they're confessing their sins to God. And the priest is witnessing the confession and then offering help and advice. Um, The idea is that it's a lot more along the lines of you're confessing your sins to one another. And then that other person is helping to restore you um, and to give you help and guidance in how to Maybe not con- not commit that sin again and not be in the bonds of that sin and to overcome
1: and it really does foster community in that sense so with that we are at the end of our second part of our sacraments series and we have some recommended resources for you the first is an article called confession from catholic.org The second is also about confession. It's an article called Confessing in the Presence of a Priest, and that is from the Orthodox Church in America. So that is going to have the Eastern Orthodox perspective. And we also have a YouTube channel that we'll recommend to you. It's by Father Chris Finley, and we will link that in the show notes as well. If you would like any more information, you can visit our website at ThriveTheology.com. And if you want to follow us along and make sure that you're getting updates about the podcast and all that sort of thing, you can also follow us on Instagram, where you'll find us at ThriveTheology. And we hope to hear from you. If you've been enjoying this series, let us know. Shoot us a message or a comment on our Instagram page, or you can always email us on our website as well. We will chat with you next week. Bye!